0: This morning's passage is from Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 11. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Would you
1: pray with me this morning? Uh, Father, we come and we have humble expectations for this morning. We simply expect a miracle. Uh, Father, you are the God of miracles. They are not hard for you. So we pray that you would do a miracle in each and every heart, that you would transform stony hearts into fertile soil, cold hearts into warm, loving hearts, that you would take your place at the center of our affections. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I don't think I'm Irish. Though, you know, no, McQua just doesn't sound right. Uh, I don't think I'm Irish, but the story of St. Patrick makes me wish I was. The story of St. Patrick is just one of the great stories in church history. And kids, if you don't know the story of St. Patrick, after the service, get your parents to go take you back to the church library. I'm sure we have several books on St. Patrick. St. Patrick was born in the late 4th or early 5th century, raised in a Christian home. His father was a deacon in the church, his grandfather a priest. But early on in his life, his faith was not something he gave much consideration to. But at the age of 16, Patrick, he wasn't St. Patrick then, just Patrick, was kidnapped from his home in what would be modern-day Scotland and taken to Ireland There in Ireland, he was a slave for the next six years, and it was during that point that he says his faith became real and meaningful to him. At the age of 22, so six years enslaved, at the age of 22, he has a vision saying a a ship is ready for you on the coast, and he makes his escape 200 miles on foot to the coast, gets aboard a ship, and the next part of the story is really, really great, but I don't have time to tell all of it, eventually makes his way back home. Shortly thereafter, he has another vision of people in Ireland calling back and saying, Oh, holy boy, come and share the gospel with us. And he accepts that call to go back to those people who had kidnapped him, stolen him from his family, enslaved him, and bring them the gospel. He, He goes through 16 years of training and preparation, overcoming obstacles. People thought he was crazy for wanting to go back there. But he does. And he ends up baptizing thousands of converts, establishing hundreds of churches, ordaining 300, I believe, priests and bishops in his lifetime. St. Patrick is a picture of someone who's been gripped by and transformed by God's grace. Jonah, on the other hand, is a picture of one who has received grace He's tasted the goodness and the mercy of God and has not allowed himself to be transformed by it. Uh, The book of Jonah is is full of contrasts that we've looked at. This is the last week in the series. Jonah chapter 1, there was the contrast between Jonah who claimed to fear God and the sailors who displayed a genuine fear of God. In Jonah chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 3, there's this contrast between Jonah's quote-unquote repentance and Nineveh's genuine repentance. Now, at the end of Jonah chapter 3, there's another great contrast between the king of Nineveh who's inside the city walls sitting uncomfortably in sackcloth and ashes hoping that his city will not be destroyed and outside the city walls You've got the prophet of God sitting uncomfortably in the sand and the heat, hoping God will destroy that city. But when you dive down into Jonah chapter 4, you get to the nut of it, to the real contrast that is being highlighted in this book. It's the contrast between God's heart and Jonah's. In the first three chapters of Jonah, we've had to read between the lines. We've had to infer some of his motives and and why he refuses to go to Nineveh. In Jonah chapter 4, he outs himself. He reveals how bent and warped and twisted he is. His moral compass is just horrifically warped. The text says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angrier or furious. Literally translated, it was an evil, a great evil to Jonah, and he was angry. shows you just how far from the heart of God Jonah is. In Psalm 145, a a psalm of praise to God, the psalmist says the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. But to Jonah, it's a great evil that God would have compassion on these people. Nineveh repents, and God's anger wanes. But as God's anger is waning, Jonah's... Is rising. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner repents. Angels rejoicing, Nineveh has repented, and Jonah pouting. He reveals his motives in this chapter. When he ran, we were wondering is he scared of the Nevites? They are a scary people, right? They're violent. They're known for their violence. Nope. He wasn't scared. He wasn't afraid he'd be beaten or killed or run out and tarred and feathered. He was afraid God would be good. We wondered about Jonah's confession. Is it a genuine confession? But here we see, nope. Not at all. He defends his actions. This is why I ran. I knew you were going to be good to them. I was right all along. Now from a purely earthly perspective, I get it. Right? Nineveh was the enemy of his people. But Jonah had received, and Jonah's people had received mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, but he's not willing to extend it to others, even though he has received it and is deeply in debt to it. You know, schools start in right. I know you high school students, college students, you like it when the professor grades on the curve, right? Now, if you aced the exam... You got an A, answered every question right. You might not be thrilled that other people who didn't put in the work or didn't ace the material get bumped up. You might complain about it if you got a perfect score and you got an A. I mean, that's not a way to make friends among your peers, but pure justice, I I get it. But Jonah didn't get an A, (laughs) Jonah got a big fat F in obedience, a big fat F in understanding what it means to be a follower of Yahweh, a big fat F in Israel's purpose in the world. He failed in all those things, and frankly, so did Israel. Jonah needed the curve, and he was graded on the curve. He received mercy, but he's complaining that Nineveh gets it. Jonah is a living parable. The parable that Jesus told of the forgiven servant who goes out, he's been forgiven millions of dollars. Huge debt. And he walks out and he finds someone who owes him two pennies. And he strangles him. Jonah's that parable in real life. Now, it's one thing to forget, right? Maybe you forgot how much you've been forgiven. You forget how much mercy you've been shown. I don't know how Jonah could forget it. I mean, he was swallowed by a fish. That's not something you forget. And he isn't forgetting it. He, he, he's quoting from it. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 34 here. The Lord, the Lord, a gracious and compassionate God is merciful, his loving kindness, is steadfast. He's quoting from this great passage. But the context of that passage is a horrible breach of covenant by Israel. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to get the tablets of the law. And while he's up there, the people form a golden calf and begin worshiping the golden calf God says to Moses in Exodus 32, I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. But Moses intercedes and says, no, don't do that. What will the nations think? That you just brought us out to the desert to destroy us? He intercedes and God relents. Exodus 32, And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken to bring to the people almost the exact same wording as Jonah 3:10 Jonah's quoting from this he knows he and Israel have received mercy on top of mercy and for him that's okay mercy for me mine but justice for them justice for my enemies They've done evil. They should be destroyed. Now, thankfully, God doesn't need our approval. In Exodus 33, same context, same chapters, God says, I will have compassion on whom I have, will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He doesn't need Jonah or our permission But God being God makes Jonah exceedingly angry, so much so that he wants to die. His moral compass is warped, but it gets worse. You knew that was coming, didn't you? It gets worse. Jonah reveals that he is theologically twisted. It's not just his east, west, north, south that's off. It's his up and down too. He is vertically disoriented, theologically twisted. This is the second time that we've heard Jonah pray. Frankly, I like this one better because it's at least honest, but it's not good. And my wife and I have been married now 26 years, uh, almost 26, 26 in September. She was looking at me like, eh. Uh, uh, We've had our, you know, scrapes, our arguments. Um, every once in a while she'll look at me and she'll say, You're just so logical. And I'm tempted to say thank you. Because, I mean, that's, the words sound like a compliment. But the tone and the look on your face is saying not so much. That's what Jonah is doing here. The words he's saying I know you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That is wonderful praise. That is a pillar of liturgy in Israel. And he turns it into accusation. You. I knew it. You are going to have mercy on them. You can't help it. He's spitting these words out with spite towards God. He is exceedingly angry. Jonah's looking at God with squinted eyes and turning his good character into accusation. I think you've caught on for these five weeks now I don't like Jonah, right? Not a fan. But by the time we get to Jonah chapter 4, I actually have pity on him. A little bit like Frodo looking at Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Gollum has become so twisted by the evil power of the ring has over him Jonah's just become so twisted. Up is down, left is right. I have pity on him. He's so angry, he wants to die. If you're keeping track, this is the second time he's attempted a kind of passive suicide. The first time was death by sailor, suicide by sailor. This is, you know, Yahweh-assisted suicide is what he's asking for. I just feel sorry for him. But a huge question is how did Jonah get here? Because we are all little Jonas in the making. I think we're meant to read Jonah, not just as an interesting story from the seventh you know, or eighth century BC, but a story that can be a mirror to looking into our own hearts. How did Jonah get to where he is, this dark, twisted place? And how do we prevent ourselves from getting there? Well, a few things from the text I think help us understand how Jonah got here. First, humility died on the vine, and pr- pride took root. Took root and bore a poisonous fruit in his life. In Jonah, there is a pride that is based on group identity. Group identity. Uh, Last night, my last son fell to the dark side, and he switched to an iPhone. (laughs) Anyone else here? An Android user? All right. My people. Right? (laughs) Right? We know we're better, right? We have not bowed the knee to Apple. There is pride in that group identity. Jonah took deep, sinful pride in his group identity. I am a Hebrew, not one of those pagan sailors. Not one of those Ninevites that clings to worthless idols. I am a Hebrew, not a pagan, not a Gentile. I am part of God's chosen people. And God's reply would be, Oh, Jonah, do you really think it was because of anything good in you or in your people that I chose you? Abraham was living in a tent, worshiping his family gods. I made him a great nation. You weren't righteous. You weren't holy. You weren't powerful. You didn't have great armies. I chose you out of my grace and goodness to serve the world. Okay. This could be a problem for us and our group identity, right? We evangelicals are known for a lot of things. Humility ain't one of them. We're known for our programs, for our missions. We can take great pride in in our group theology. Oh, we're better than the liberals. We take the Bible seriously, we're better than the fundamentalists. We think. We're not anti intellectual. We can act almost as if when we go to heaven, God will say, Oh, let him, let her in. They belonged to an evangelical church. It's become a source of sinful pride. But Jonah's pride was also based on performance, personal performance. A lot of commentators have pointed out that the story of Jonah follows the story of the prodigal son. The first half, Jonah is the prodigal, prodigal prophet. The second half, he's the self-righteous older brother. Proud that he stayed faithful to his father and didn't wander off. You hear that in Jonah's rhetoric all through this book. I fear the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I'm a prophet after all. Oh, they're, they're sinners. Well, Jonah, you do know you're a sinner too, right? Yes, but not that kind of sinner. Oh. Oh. Have you said that before? Have you thought that? Oh God, I, I know I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not fill in the blank. That's the kind of pride that needs to be uprooted lest we become warped and twisted and become Jonahs. Humility died on the vine. Pride grew. Also, love grew cold. Uh, love is a fire in the hearth that needs to be constantly tended, and when it's not, it grows cold. God uses this incredible, awesome object lesson of the plant that grows up over Jonah and gives him shade. I read countless pages. Well, that's an exaggeration. I read a few pages uh, this week about what this plant was. Was it a vine? Was it a gourd? Was it a, a castor bean oil plant? And I was reading, and I'm like, Who cares? Uh, It's a pumpkin, okay? God caused this pumpkin plant to go up over Jonah and give him shade. God appointed a plant. And it made Jonah exceedingly glad. He's really happy about the plant. Then God appoints a worm to eat the plant And a shirako, a scorching east wind, to come and make Jonah really miserable. In God's mercy, he's making Jonah really miserable. And then he asks, oh, are you angry? (laughs) Jonah is angry that the gourd, the pumpkin, perished. He didn't care that the sailors were perishing. He wanted Nineveh to perish. But oh, he is angry about the plant. The plant, God says, was here today and gone tomorrow. It grew in a night, disappeared in a night. You didn't plant it, you didn't tend it, but Nineveh, 120,000 eternal souls that I created, that I formed. I know their names, I have tended them. That city, that great city, is mine. How can I not care for them? They are of far more worth. I created them, and I love this in the book of Jonah, and the cattle. I care for all of it. But to Jonah, they weren't people worthy of love. They were simply them. Who are your them? When you start to say their name, even right now as you're thinking about them, your, your lip wants to curl up in a little bit of a snarl. Maybe it's that family member who's caused problems. Ugh, Uncle Bob. <laughs> I don't have an Uncle Bob. So... <laughs> Sorry, Bob. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. <laughs> Welcome back, Bob. <laughs> See, I almost said a real relative's name, and I caught myself at the last minute and inserted Bob, and yeah. <laughs> Uncle Jim Bob. How about that? Uncle Jim Bob. Maybe it's that neighbor that they put up a fence. They throw a lot of parties. Ugh. Maybe it's those people from that place. Maybe it's that nation. We lived in a really we live in a really polarized time and it hasn't the church hasn't been exempt from that. Maybe it's those MAGA Republicans. Maybe it's those liberal Dems. The them. You have a hard time loving them. Be careful. When you allow your love to grow cold, you're on the path to being Jonah. It wasn't just Jonah's love for the other on the horizontal plane. It was his love for God also. Love grew cold and idols were erected. Jonah did not love the God who spared Nineveh. Jonah loved a version of God. A God who conformed to his standards. The real God was replaced in Jonah's mind and heart with a God of his own creating. Jonah loved the idea of Israel's God, loved the blessings of God, the blessings of land and people especially. And whoever, whatever, threatened those was enemy. Nineveh threatened Israel. Nineveh was enemy. God threatened Israel. Israel by forgiving Nineveh, and God became enemy. Jonah didn't want a God who was good to all and had compassion on all he had made. He wanted a regional, territorial God who was limited to the borders of Israel, at least whose goodness was limited to the borders of Israel. He wanted God to be more like Or Asherah. It's not the God he was given, not the God who he was beholden to serve or worship. This is a problem for us. It's a problem for Christians of every age. John Calvin, the Reformer, said that our hearts are little idol factories. We're constantly Creating idols, constantly reforming God in our imaginations to conform to what we want. There are many today who want God, who want a God, fashioned after the spirit of this age, who will wink and nod at sin, who will affirm us in all of our sinful desires. Others want a God who is okay with us taking advantage of the poor as long as it advances the corporate bottom line and grows the GDP. Many want a God who is fine with injustice as long as it's done in the name of law and order. He's okay with trampling the oppressed if it maintains the status quo. Many want a God who doesn't threaten, doesn't demand, doesn't require repentance. A safe and comfortable God who doesn't send us to them. Who we can put up on a mantle, trot out on Sundays, but hide in the closet if needed. And God says, no, I am who I am. And I am good. That's how the book of Jonah ends. Jonah pouting under a plant. But what happens to Jonah? We don't know. We're not given that kind of detailed information. But I want to speculate for a minute. I think Jonah got it. I think he went back to Israel and told this story. How else would we know this story? How else would we know what he was saying in the belly of a fish? Or what his argument with God was? I think, in the end, we're invited to see mercy triumph, even over Jonah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Mercy triumphs. Uh, the book of Jonah bears witness to God's faithfulness to his promises, promise made to Abraham that I will use you to bless all the nations. Jonah is a good signpost. Haven't forgotten that promise. We're going to bless Nineveh through you, Jonah. But it points us ahead to Jesus, who is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. What we glimpse in Jonah, we see in full spectrum in Jesus. God's intention to bless all of humanity through Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. We're grateful that your word is not filled with just heroes, but antiheroes too. People who you used to advance your purposes, your cause, despite themselves. People who needed mercy and were given mercy. Father, in these kind of stories, I find tremendous hope that you can use us, that there will be mercy there for us when we need it. We should never doubt that on this side of the cross. You've given your Son to provide grace and to provide mercy. We are grateful. We pray that you would allow this grace to transform us, to change our hearts, to never be stingy with grace, to never accuse you of the God who is compassionate and merciful. Father, I pray that that would be a praise that is always on our tongue. In Jesus' name, amen.